0: And apparently, my daughter tells me I have a YouTube page and all this stuff is on there, I don't know. I don't know how to get to it. OK, so the Christmas story. It's a great story. And uh, you, know, you can see by my house, even my family doesn't buy into the real story. but. Um, we're going to look at what the Bible actually says about Christmas, and you'll find some of it might be just a tad different than perhaps we've, you know, the typical Christmas show and all of that stuff, like <coughs> your wife is probably doing tonight at her school. Um, so before we uh, get too oh no, too much into it, uh, there's a little background we need to discuss, because Uh, I could spend hours and hours just setting this up. But let me just read to you from Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 uh, through 19. And it says, Think not that I have come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one yacht or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the Torah till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of the least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But who shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So it's been our goal of this Bible study to try to, um, you know, to try not to be the least in the kingdom. Although I've always said I'd be happy to be the toilet cleaner in heaven if I could just get there. So by doing the things that he's asked us to do, um, we'll be good in heaven. So when we think about the Christmas aspect, and of course, I'm sure you all know that Jesus wasn't actually born on Christmas, but there is a significant tie-in to December 25th. Um, And all the stuff that you see, and I'll send this stuff, I've been lagging this year, I don't know why, But I can send you all this stuff about, you know, Christmas and why there's trees and Santa Claus and Yule logs and Wassel bowls. And I mean, all that stuff is totally 100% pagan. But it's fun stuff anyway. So then the other thing we have to consider is when you're talking about, and this is not just true of Christmas. This is true of pretty much anything back more than, say, 500 years. We, uh, who knows what kind of calendar we follow now. The Georgian. Thank you so much. So in 1582, um, we got the Georgian calendar from... This isn't a hard one. Georgian. Thank you. Um, And it was the first calendar that used a 364 and a quarter day year, which is pretty close to what a year is so that's why we have a leap day you know they call it a leap year but it's a day a day so we have four days or four years of 364 and then we get an extra day and then every hundred years and most people don't know this about our calendar every hundred years they have to adjust it again because it the It's not actually 364 and a quarter days. It's 364 and a quarter and change or minus change or something. So it all adds up. And eventually, I suppose, your calendar would be way off, like all these calendars in the past have been. So they adjusted every 100 years to tweak it back to being right. Um, Previous to that, we used what was called the Julian calendar. And that came to us from... Thank you. Yeah, Julie, that lady. Um, In 46 B.C., that was one of the Greek uh, Julius, I guess. Uh, anyway, so that calendar was the most accurate at the time for non-Jews, and it had 355 days in a year. So they were, you know, you had to make it up. So every, every so often you'd have this extra 22 uh, day month, which was it's a pretty tough way to keep track of time, because, you know, it just... And before that, there was the Babylonian and the Roman calendars, and they kept really good track of 10 months of the year. And then the next two were just like, eh, whatever. Winter didn't really have any time. And then it all squared up back in the spring and they started with their 10 months again. But the Jews, um, they did it a different way. They, they have what they call a lunar calendar or a lunar solar calendar, actually. So the moon, you know, comes up once a month, right? Every 29 and a half and some days, so they would keep track of, and that's why they would have a priest up on the highest point in Israel looking, and as soon as they saw the moon, they would send the alarm. That would be the moment the new month would start. And that's why when you read in your Bible, no man knows the time or the day or the hour or something. They were actually referring to that because they didn't really know what day it was going to be because, you know, you're, you're six hours off every month or whatever, so if you don't have a computer or a watch or something, the only thing you can go by is when the moon appears. Then on a cloudy day, if you didn't see it, then the month wouldn't start till the next day. If that's when they saw the moon, so so that put them, uh, you know, at 360 days. Hey, Linda. So they were five and some change off every month or every year. So what they did is they added an extra 30-day month seven times every 19 years. So I'm sure none of that's hard to keep track of. Ever since we've lost the sundial, we've never been able to keep track of time correctly. Because when you watch it on a sundial, it doesn't matter how many minutes or how many hours. The sun, you know, some, some days are 22 hours and 50 some odd minutes. Some days are 25 hours. Doesn't matter if you're using a sundial. It only matters if you have a computer or a watch or something. And it's not jiving. So it's led to all these things. Then you've got uh, the, the Julian calendar doesn't have a year zero, and then you've got on on the Jewish calendar the day starts at sundown. So there's all of these things. So when you're looking back in time, you have to make these adjustments. And we could spend a week doing the class on how to make these adjustments, but. Uh, NASA has discovered they had to do it. Because when they're sending something to some interplanetary body, they have to know where it is. Because they have to know how to get there. And how they do it is they track it back in time. So they have to make all the adjustments and put it in in our times today. So I'm going to say things like... uh, September 24th of 5 B.C. Understand that that's on the, our calendar today, the Georgian calendar. If you were to read another book or look at it in different places, it'll say, oh, no, it was the 12th of Tishri you know, whatever, different year. That's fine. That's because it's a different calendar and they count it differently and whatever. But to simplify everything, I'm using NASA's calculations and putting it in our calendar. But just know that's not necessarily the way they would have viewed it at the time. And I also might mention that to this very day, every time NASA sends something out of our gravitational sphere, they use these calculations of where the planet will be, and they have factored into this the day and a half in Scripture that you can add up that the sun has either stopped or the Earth has stopped. Because if they didn't factor that in, they'd miss the body that they're shooting for. So they used to admit that they don't admit it anymore. There's probably nobody at NASA anymore that even knows that, but that's all factored into their equations. So, <clears throat> okay. So the Christmas story begins in Genesis chapter one, uh, verse 14, and it said. And God said, let there be lights, and these are not Christmas lights, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven to divide the day from the night and to be for signs, which is the word oath. It means a sign, a signal, a beacon, a flag. Be for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. And the law of first mention always tells you that the thing that's mentioned first is the most important. And it's interesting, when you read Genesis, that he put all the sun and the stars and the moon and all the heavenly bodies up there, and the entire universe he built, and he built them for the, the most important reason he built them was to send us a message. We, we use them as uh, to tell the seasons, to de- tell the days, to tell the years. Those are fairly inconsequential because it's fairly obvious. The reason all that stuff is up there are to send us signs and signals. And if you know the Matsaroth, you know the whole story of, um, you know, the, the whole story is in the stars, but... So when we talk about some of this stuff tonight, realize, and and it's true to this day, when there's some huge spiritual deal or some biblical deal that goes on, they are often accompanied by or preceded by some event in the heavens. And think this through as we're going through all this stuff tonight. For that to happen, the Lord had to put all that in motion from before the foundations of the universe and he had to know what every single person involved, presumably every single person on earth was going to say, do, think, and, and, and actually act. And his response, because we can do whatever we want to do, and we think it's our free will, and it is. We can do anything, right? But he already knows what it is you're going to do from before the time you were even here, from before the foundations of the earth, from before the foundations of the universe, and he has put all the planets and stars in motion so that everything corresponds. And as we get into some of this stuff tonight, I hope that sinks in because it is phenomenal when you think it through. I mean, there's just, there's no way to think it through its conclusion. It's just, it's it's past our little gray matter. So the Christmas story goes on in First Chronicles chapter 24. I know, great place for a Christmas story, right? And in 20... You guys all know this verse by heart, this chapter? You should. This is a very important chapter. First Chronicles chapter 24. This is the chapter that delineates the courses of the priests in the temple. So they know when to go to work. So there are 24 courses. Each course has a name. Each priest works two weeks. But they're not two consecutive weeks. They're two weeks about six months apart. So each priest, and this is a pretty good gig if you can get it, works one week, then they come back in six months or so, and work another week. So that's 48 weeks. And then it's all hands on deck for the feasts. So there's about three weeks worth of feasts to get you to a year. So every priest works roughly five weeks. So we learn from chapter 24 of first chronicles that the eighth course which is the course that the priest Zechariah belonged to is called Abiah or we typically call it abijah but it's Abiah and it's the eighth course of the year so in 5 bc and remember what i said about the calendar so don't give me a bunch of grief about it wasn't that year it was four or two or you know whatever I'm using the NASA calculation. In 5 BC, his two uh, weeks, his first week was uh, Sivan 13th through the 19th, or I'm sorry, Sivan 12th through the 18th, which in our calendar would have been June 13th through the 19th of 5 BC. And Chislew 12th through the 18th, which in our calendar would have been December 6th, bless you, through December 12th. Okay, so... You might be a little more familiar with some of these verses. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. It said, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the course of Abijah. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So this Christmas story, and remember, I'm just this is the 30,000 foot view, so I'm skipping a lot of stuff to try and get it in tonight. So apparently this Christmas story that we're all familiar with takes place in Zachariah's first term, which on our calendar would have been June 12th to the 18th of 5 BC. And on that day, Luke records this event in chapter 1, starting in verse 8. And it came to pass while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, His lot was to burn incense, and when he went into the temple of the Lord, and the whole multitude of people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of the incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard. Thy wife Elizabeth shall bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you shall have joy and gladness And many shall rejoice at his birth, for he shall be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go on before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. This is Malachi 4, by the way. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said unto the angel, Whereby I shall know this, for I am an old man. And, somebody want to finish that for me? Yeah. well stricken in years, and the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these tidings." Thank you. So we're all familiar with that verse. Um, So I just want to recap a little bit about the cast so far in the Christmas story. We've got Zacharias, and that's actually how you would spell it, Zechariah. And it's from the Hebrew word zakar, which means to remember and act on what you remember. And almost all of us have gone to churches, maybe still go to churches, That have some sort of an altar in front we go up and do communion and it'll say do this in remembrance of me or sometimes the the table at the front yours probably does says remember or something it has words to that effect so that word in hebrew is zakar it means to remember but in hebrew it means more than just to remember it means to do something about what you've just remembered don't go oh yeah you know jesus was a great guy and he died on the cross okay uh, what kind of donuts do they have? You know, act on what you know. Act on your remembrance. So that's the word zakar. And then Yah, you're probably familiar with Yah. It's just a contraction for Yahweh, the eternal name of God. So Zacharias is uh, on the team of abaya Abiah is from Ab, which is father. And Yah, again, is the eternal name of God. Uh, Elizabeth, you can see it's uh, Elisheba is another, uh, it starts with the word al, a-l, it's a-l-e, It's we pronounce it L. It's another word for God, El Shaddai, you know, like that. And Sheba is a word you might know. It's it's uh, the Hebrew word for oath or uh, to swear or like that. It's also the word for seven in Hebrew. And then Yokanon or John. Um, if you've been here any length of time, you know the word Cain, it means... to to encamp with. It's translated in English as grace, but that's not an awesome translation. And of course, uh, it's got the word of God again. So it's it's, John, Yochanan, means camps with God, or uh, the grace of God is on him. So what you've got so far is the man who remembers God in Acts is on the team of God the Father and his helpmate, God makes an oath that will be perfect and complete, gives birth to a son who camps with Yahweh. And these guys are about to get involved in something that we call the Christmas story. So it should be good given their names. Okay, so back to the account of Zacharias. His term would have ended on what we would call the 19th of June at noon, because the priests work uh, noon of the Sabbath to noon of the Sabbath. So he's done June 19th at noon, but he can't leave because it's the Sabbath. So he would need to wait until the next morning, which uh, would be June 20th, before he could set off for home. And it's 30 miles from the temple to uh, Zacharias' home. Uh, Luke 1, 39 to 40 tells you he lives in the hill country of Judea. And Zacharias was well stricken in years, it says. And being an observant Jew, he wouldn't have had a horse. So we can conclude it would take him at least two days to get home. So let's assume that he made it home on the evening of June 22nd. And remember on the Hebrew calendar at sundown, the day changes, not at midnight. So if he's home in the late afternoon, the sun's going down. The Lord has told him he's going to have a baby. They're well stricken in years. This is of some excitement to them because they have no children. And presumably, they would have followed up on what the angel told them to do. And that would have been on the Jewish calendar, the 23rd of what we call June of 5 BC. And it's worth noting for those that keep track of these things, Roman Catholics, Jews, and Eastern Orthodox religions all point to this day of June 23rd of 5 B.C. as the conception of John. And you might wonder why that even matters. (laughs) Because we don't look at things that way. We look at the birth of the baby. But most people, for most of time, have recognized that the conception of the baby is when life begins. And that is, you know, I mean, even Asian cultures to this day, if if you have a baby in Japan... Your baby is born at one year old. They credit the, nine, you know, the time served, right? So when they're, when they're born, they've already got nine months under their belt, so they credit them as being one when they're born. But almost every culture on Earth for all time has recognized that life begins at conception. And that's just another thing I would bring to your attention at how screwed up we have become. I mean, the argument that you're not born until you're born is ridiculous. The Lord certainly doesn't see it that way. But anyway, that's why most religions recognize the conception of John, and it's a holiday in some countries, uh, as the conception, not his birth. They're not too concerned about his birth per se. So it was the 23rd of June of 5 BC that he was conceived. So the Bible further records in Luke one twenty-six, in the sixth month, it's in English. You all know that the Bible wasn't written in English, right? <laughs> so we get a translation of a language that is untranslatable. Hebrew is a pictographic language, and you, there, there is no uh, uh, mechanical translation of Hebrew into any language. So unless you understand the meanings and the pictures however you read the Bible, you're not necessarily getting the full picture. I'm not saying you're not getting the truth, but what I'm saying is you're not getting the, the full picture. In English, we read Luke 26. It says, and in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent unto the city of Galilee named uh, Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came into her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee and blessed are, thee, are thou among women. Pretty much anyone who studies scripture reads that as in six months. Six months exactly from the date of this, whatever event it was. And it's not just true here. It's true whenever you read scripture like that. We read it in the sixth month. You know, to us, that's 30 days plus or minus either way. That's not necessarily what it means. It's it, it means six months, not about six months, not around six months, but six months. After some event, the angel Gabriel came, and we call this, or at least my Roman Catholic friends call it the Annunciation. It's the en- announcement by Gabriel that Mary was now with child by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit would overshadow uh, Mary, and Yeshua is conceived. So six months after the 23rd of Sivon would have been the first of Tevet. And I'm sure you guys all keep track of all that stuff. Which would have been the 25th of December of 5 B.C., So, we, you know, we have Christmas trees and presents and yule logs and wassail bowls and, I mean, all this stuff. We celebrate the fat man in the red suit and the flying reindeer and uh, all of these things have a background. This is all, these are mostly Babylonian. Uh, in Sweden, the guy wears a green suit with... Um, white trim and he has reindeer, not reindeer, he has horses that fly that take him around the world and and they've combined all of these different things and brought it to uh, a holiday and assigned to it December 25th and most people understand that that is, you know it's all completely pagan and it has no real meaning whatsoever except that going back to what I said earlier, if God has put everything in motion from before the foundations of time, put the stars in place, put everything in place, He He even knew that Constantine and and his popes and his church would change the days, and the, and He says all this in Daniel would change all of this stuff because Constantine was so anti-Semitic. He hated the Jews. He didn't want to do anything that they did. So he felt like he had to change it. His first pope um, decided that it would be a smart move, and you guys be the judge of how this worked, if they could move, because there was all these pagan celebrations around the, the winter solstice. And that's where you get the Yule log. You throw the log N in and it burns up, and you get new life, and that's the wassail bowl, and that, you know, all of these things that that we associate with Christmas are because of those these things happened at the winter solstice, which is near the 25th of December. It's not on the 25th of December. It's three days later, right? But typically, the 22nd is this winter solstice, and all these pagan feasts and all this stuff happened. And so the popes decided in order to get the pagans to start embracing their new religion, they were going to move some of their stuff to the pagan uh, uh, anniversaries and parties and all that stuff and see if they could draw those people into Christianity. And that uh, that was Constantine in 326. And you should read what he wrote. It's just, it's horrible what he thinks of the Jews and all of this. Apparently he didn't know Jesus was Jewish. And then his first pope um, made the first decree to do this. and But his pope, it wasn't a pope like today. They didn't really have papal authority. He worked for Constantine. And it wasn't until the 600s that you had a pope that actually had papal authority. And he wrote a, a letter about this Christmas thing and about Easter and all this stuff. And confirmed all the stuff that they had previously said that we're trying to get the uh, pagans to embrace the things of Christianity. So we've moved the biblical dates for all these things to coincide with the pagan uh, ideals of holidays and parties and all that stuff to see if we can bring those people into Christianity. And from where we sit, uh, they did that pretty well. Nobody, pagan, Christian, or Jew on earth, does not associate Christmas with Jesus. And it's not true, of course, but it worked. They did a great job of bringing all these pagans into a spot where they recognized Jesus. And the amazing thing is that the Lord knew this from before the foundations of time. He knew the day they were going to pick. He knew the things they were going to say. And he sent his angel and his Holy Spirit to overcome Mary at that day so that these pagans, by celebrating this supposedly Christian holiday on December 25th, which has nothing to do with anything, are actually celebrating Jesus because it was the day of his conception. So oh, anyway, um, we talk about Mary being overcome by the Spirit and, and um, Jesus That is a miracle. The ideas of raising the dead and healing the sick and restoring sight and providing salvation, those are pretty everyday miracles when you get right down to what the Lord does. This whole idea of a virgin giving birth has never happened before. And it would never happen again. This is the only time this has ever happened. This is a significant miracle. And I would suggest when we're looking at December 25th, which is actually the day of Jesus' conception. It's the day his life begins. That's the day. That is the day. That's the only time this has ever happened. All of the events of history, if you look at history like an hourglass, you know, there's a point in the middle of the hourglass. If December 25th of 5 BC is that point, that narrow spot of the hourglass, everything that happened before that was building a foundation up to what was gonna happen on that day. And everything that's happened after that is building on that foundation as a result of what happened on that day. And that day is December 25th of 5 BC. And it it was a thing that has never happened in the history of history. And it was the conception of Jesus, of Yeshua, of our Savior. So anyway, finishing the math, uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, John would have been born in mid-March, which is during the Feast of Passover in the year of 5 BC. And according to NASA, a lunar eclipse occurred March 15th of 5 BC. It fell on Passover, on the very day. That is the likely day that John was actually born. And Passover, of course, is the feast that celebrates uh, I don't know that "celebrates" is the right word. It's the feast that predicts the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That's the story of Passover, and it was yet to happen at the you know at the time of the first Passover, it had not happened yet. John was born on that day, and John is uh, in a sense a new beginning, just like Jesus was. So so all these things tied together Anytime in and the Bible is like this. You read stuff that keeps happening and happening and happening on the same day. Those things are all tied together. That's no accident. These things have been put in motion from before the foundation of time by the guy who built the universe. And it's, there's no supercomputer on Earth that can figure all this stuff out. It's so complicated. But he can do it. And if that doesn't prove to you that he is God, I don't know what ever could... So if John was born in March at Passover, you should have been born exactly six months later. That would put his birth around the third week of September of uh, 4 BC. And according to NASA, there was a lunar eclipse on the 24th of September in 4 BC. And of course, that fell during the Feast of Tabernacles in that year. was actually on the last and greatest day of the feast that year. The Feast of Tabernacles, all of the Feasts of the Bible, and I assume most of you are familiar with this, uh, they're commemorative to the Jews. They commemorate certain events and all that stuff. But to the Christian, these are events like Passover was the day that Jesus was crucified. The Feast of Fruits was the day that Jesus was raised. Uh, Pentecost was the day that uh, the law was given, that the Spirit fell, that the Jewish nation was created, that the church was created. So when we get to these last three feasts of tabernacles, it hasn't happened yet. These feasts, tabernacles, teaches us about this place is not our home. We're going to a better place. We're going to a different place. And that's why in the Feast of Tabernacles, you spend eight days outside in a booth and you construct the roof in such a way you can see the stars and the dew falls on your... Because you're to know that this place is not our home. Don't get too attached to it because we have something... We have a better eternity, an eternity with God. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So if all of the first feasts fell on the exact day of the feast, it's, I wouldn't bet against all of the things in the last feast happening on that day. So when we look at uh, the birth of Jesus being on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, which the Bible calls Tabernacles the greatest feast, and it calls the feast, the, the last day of the feast, the greatest day of the greatest feast. And they call it Hosanna Rabbah, which means uh, loosely uh, the great save. You know, it's the, it, it's the day of salvation, really. And there was a lunar eclipse that day because the Lord has already said from before the foundations of the earth, here's the deal. I'm going to tell you stuff. And you will know that it was me because I will do something nobody can do. I'll, I'll give you an eclipse. I'll give you whatever. And it's, it's almost every time, well, I would say probably every time, that there's something significant that happens in Scripture. It is accompanied by something that happens that we can't do. You know, man can do a lot and we can fake a lot and we can lie a lot and we can do a lot. But I don't know anybody who can rearrange the order of the planets, who can make comets appear, who can, that's beyond us. And the Lord knew that. So when he says, this is what's going to happen, and I'll prove it to you because I'll send you something. I'll send you something that you can't possibly do, an eclipse or whatever then you can pretty much know it's from the Lord. We tend to live in a society that sort of thinks that these things are, uh, of of both the Bible and of the things that happen in the heavenlies, are sort of random occurrences, you know, that, oh yeah, you know, the Lord was born, maybe it was on Christmas, maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe these things happen, maybe it doesn't matter when, you know, I love the Lord, that's good enough. And that's fine. That may be great. I'm sure that's enough. That's enough. But if you want more, it's there. If you want to find out the exact day something happened in the Bible, guess what? The Lord is going to confirm that. Because he says it is the honor of kings to search out a matter. He'll tell you all this stuff. It's not an issue of salvation. You know, if you, if you, if you know 37 things, then you're saved. You know, it doesn't work that way. But if you want to know those things, he will prove it to you. Or if like Thomas... You have questions in your heart. You know, they call him Doubting Thomas. That's totally bogus if you ask me. He just asked the things that the other people had seen. He wanted to see this. He wasn't there. He wanted to see the same. He wanted to know in his heart that these things were true. And to me, you look at the the universe doing stuff, and then you look at the Lord putting stuff in motion. Think about what had to happen. The Caesar... The Roman Caesar had to get a hair up his butt to decide he needed a census. And instead of counting the people where they were, he told them to go back to their home. Well, that's a ridiculous idea. But the Lord knew he was going to do that. And not only did he know that he was going to do that, he knew when he was going to do that. And that was going to happen. And he was going to confirm all this stuff by overcoming this girl nine months previous having her have a baby from the Holy Spirit, sending her to a place that she would never go as a pregnant woman, and confirming it all was stuff in the, in the celestial bodies. All before the foundations of the earth were even built. I mean, this guy's wild. We can't even wrap our arms around. I mean, I can't. You people are probably a lot smarter than me. Well, I'm sure there's no question about that. But I mean, how does this even happen? How does it happen logistically? But why does it happen? He thinks so much of us. He loves us so much. He knows that there's going to be an entire world that's going to try to separate us from, from the things of the Lord. And he cares enough to prove, if you need to see proof, I've got it. Just listen to what I say and watch what I'm going to do. My friend Mike says, believing in the Bible, or the Bible's not hard to understand. It's just hard to believe it's true. Because it's, I mean, stuff like this is, It. how do you, it's just wild. So Jesus was born during the greatest feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the feast about us going home. Uh, So most of you probably know I'm not much of a techie. I think pretty much all technical stuff is from the devil, <laughs> and we should just read the Bible and be happy with it. But for some reason, I, I don't. We use this stuff. I used to have a three-ring notebook, which maybe I should go back to. OK, the greatest feast. Is the Feast of Tabernacles the greatest day of the greatest feast? Is the last day that's the day Jesus was born, accompanied by a lunar eclipse? Genesis 1 1. Does anybody know Genesis 1 1? Very good, that's not right. Genesis 1 1 says, In the beginning, right? It actually says, Before the beginning, and we've done you know, the It took seven weeks just to get through that word. It's awesome. In the beginning, Bereshit Barab creates out of nothing that has ever existed before, Elohim, God. And then it says Aleph Tav. It's not translated in English. It's the A, A is the first letter. T is the last letter. We would call it A to Z. It's the letters. It says, in the beginning, God created the letters, the words, the Bible. He created the Tanakh and the Torah. These were built first before anything else happened. This, the word that you read, even in English, in your Old Testament, if you want to call it that, the Tanakh, those words, those truths were put in place before anything was created. And it all is accurate, and it all fall, the, the, the eclipses, the I mean, all, it all happens because he put it in place from before the beginning of time. Okay, so the word in Hebrew is tamid. It's the offering. And you've read enough of your Tanakh, maybe even enough of the New Testament to know that at the temple, there are many, many offerings. And the offering is an animal, typically a sheep. And the sheep, before it can be offered, has to be examined and has to be seen to be without blemish. So this sheep has to, or this any animal, but particularly the sheep has to be perfect, right? You know why? Because the Messiah was perfect, right? And the animal's blood is shed. And you know why? Because the Messiah's blood was shed. So at the temple in Jerusalem, They needed 10,000 sheep a year. That's a lot of sheep. And they have to be perfect. So in America, we would call our local sheep vendor and we would say, look, I need 30 sheep every day, one-year-old, male, perfect. Drop them off at nine by the back door. They didn't have that guy. There was no Cisco foods or whatever. They had to have these sheep to fulfill what they call the tamid, the offerings. So the priests had a sheep ranch, a big sheep ranch, a few clicks outside of Bethlehem. And this sheep ranch was on the land owned by Boaz. And we just talked about Boaz last week in Ruth, kinsman, redeemer, father of David, father of Jesus, married the Gentile. It's the whole story of our lives. Book of Ruth, Genesis 24, Abraham. We have to leave what we think of as the world. We have to leave those things behind and follow after the things of the Lord. That's Boaz, right? That's the guy. He owns this property that the sheep ranch is on. That's why when the, the Caesar called for the census and everybody to go home, that's where Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem to this piece of property owned by Boaz because Boaz was their relative. They would have had to have gone there that's the rule that's the law that's where the census would be taken so they went to bethlehem and bethlehem you know the hebrew word for house a lot of you know baith and the word for bread lakim baith lakim is bethlehem in english it's the house of bread as in the bread of life locally it's known as uh, the city of sheep because bethlehem like colorado Has more sheep than people, and they were known for their sheep ranches. But there was this one particular sheep ranch on the highest point of the mountain of Bethlehem, just above Bethlehem, six clicks outside or something. And that was owned by the temple, and that was run by the priests and one of the priests that worked as a shepherd in this temple as a young boy was named David. You know him as a shepherd. Well, that's what he was shepherding. He was shepherding the sheep for the temple at this place in Jerusalem. But you had to have the sheep be perfect. Well, I don't know. Are there any ranchers here? (laughs) You know, you have Stuff happens and people, you know, animals drop babies and they get scuffed up. But you don't care, right? It's a cow, big deal or whatever. You're going to, you know, it doesn't matter. But it mattered with these. So in this sheep sheep ranch up on the hill above Jerusalem with all the sheep for the temple and all of the priests herding the sheep, there was a thing called the Migdal Idair, the, the Tower of the Flock. And that was what we saw in the beginning. Mm-hmm. There was a... And that's that's an actual one. It's probably not the one. But they would have a building like that built on the highest point of whatever the land was so that they could go up at the top and keep an eye on the sheep and make sure there were no predators nearby. But you see it's got an opening. And underneath was a there or probably several because they needed 30 sheep a day, uh, these limestone bowls. And limestone is fairly soft, as you know. You can carve it out. You can make it really smooth. And it's a little bowl called a marbake. And you fill it full of hay. And when the pregnant or sheep were pregnant and they were about to give birth, the shepherds would bring them in to the tower of the flock, and they would lay them in the marbake, which is smooth and covered with hay, And the sheep would give birth and they could protect the sheep while it was young and it wouldn't get scuffed up and cut and they would wrap it in linen. They would swaddle it like you would a baby to protect the sheep. So Micah chapter 4 verse 8 says this, And thus, O tower, which is the word Migdal of the flock, I dare, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, into into thee it shall, oh my God, Into thee shall it come even the first dominion. The king shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. So it's telling you a couple of things, three things that I can think of right there. The Lord is going to come more than once. He's going to come a first time, and then presumably he's going to come back again. Now Jews knew that. They recognized they even had names for him. They had the first coming and the second coming. They, of course, thought it was two different guys. The first guy would be the suffering servant. The second guy would be the conquering hero. They didn't quite connect the fact that it was one guy coming twice. But in the book of Micah, it tells you, look, the first time this guy comes as the suffering servant, he's going to come from this Migdal idea, from the tower of the flock. And he's gonna come to his people, the daughters of Jerusalem, to the Jews. So under the tower, protected from the weather and the predators, the hollowed out smooth limestone bowl or a birthing room, it's called a marbake or mekorah in Hebrew, or roughly a manger in English. And this smooth limestone bowl would be filled with hay and it would be warm-ish because it was in this building and it was to make sure that the sheep there were not damaged when they were born. They would swaddle them. They would wrap them in this Spargano as the Greek word. It's strips of linen they would rip up, and they would wrap the sheep in it, keep them warm, keep them from being scuffed and damaged and and all of that stuff. This is the place that Mary came. It was on the land of Boaz where they had to go. And in those days, well, even in these days, um, I know when we had our children, you take the leads to the hospital and they roll her into the birthing room. And you have, you give birth, you know, and then they roll you out of the birthing room and put you somewhere else. But there is a specific place where you give birth. That's the way it was in those days too. The women didn't give birth at home. They went to a room, And the reason they didn't do it at home is because any issue of blood would render them and anyone nearby uh, unclean, ceremonially unclean. Well, you can't do that in the middle of a feast. If she was to go to the house and have this baby, everyone in the house would be ceremonially unclean and they wouldn't be able to go to the to the feast. Well, you can't, you can't have that. So she came to the land of Boaz. And what was she doing? She was delivering the Lamb of God, the sacrifice for all of us. The, the, the Tanakh is clear that the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb has to be spotless, has to be from the Migdal Ider, has to be born in the Marbake of the land of Boaz just outside of Bethlehem. So go back to the thought of how do you get Mary and Joseph from wherever they are to this exact Marbake on this exact day? How does that happen? Oh, just a coincidence. It just worked out that way. The Lord had the Roman, his servant, the Roman Caesar, who was not a believer, who despised the Jews and everything Jewish, somehow had him call for a census and to make every person in in Israel move so he could count them, which is a crazy, ridiculous idea, on a specific day to get a specific woman into a specific Migdal-I-Dare into a specific Marbake to have a certain baby on an exact day and I'll show you a lunar eclipse just to make sure that we got this right. I mean, is that crazy? So we read Luke chapter 2 verse 7. And it said, she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, Bargano, and laid him there in a manger because there was no room for him at the inn. Well, that's ridiculous. That is phrased. I mean, okay, the word cataluma is the word translated as in everywhere else in Scripture. It's translated as guest chamber. Why is it translated as in here just to mislead you? I don't know why. Who is in town this day besides Mary and Joseph and seven million other people? Zacharias. The only other person besides Mary that knew who this baby was. Zacharias is a priest in the temple and he has access to the priestly garments. When you're a priest and you wear linen garments, they get dirty. They get worn, They get damaged. But they're sanctified and you can't just throw them away. They have to be used in the service of God. So what the priests would do is they would take their old used garments that have been dirtied or torn, or or they can't wear them anymore, and they would rip them into strips, bargano, and they would twist them together, and that would become the wicks that go in the oil bowls in the menorahs to light the temple, because they were still used for holy purposes. In the Feast of Tabernacles, which was at the temple... There were 75-foot-tall menorahs built that went in, there was four of them that went in the temple or the court of the women. These 75-foot-tall menorahs, each of course had seven bowls. Each bowl held seven gallons. And they say the light from these menorahs was so bright they could see it 60 miles away at the coast. Ships at sea could see the light of the menorahs at the temple during Tabernacles. That's when Jesus was born. Mary and Joseph were at the Migdal-I-Dare. They were in the Marbake of the Migdal-I-Dare in the house of bread, six miles away and just above the tent. They saw the lights for certain. Absolutely they saw them. So the priestly garments would be twisted up into the wicks that would go into these seven-gallon bowls that would light these huge lights for seven days. But they had to be used They were consecrated. They had to be used for sanctified purposes for the Lord. They couldn't just be thrown away. So Zacharias is in town. Mary's in town. Zacharias knows who this baby is because he's John's father. Mary knew who this baby is because the angel had told her. I would bet any amount of money that the swaddling clothes that the baby Jesus was wrapped in was not the same cloth they wrapped the sheep in, but it was brand new, unused, sanctified, consecrated linen from the temple that Zacharias brought over to wrap the baby Jesus in. On that day with a lunar eclipse, it had to be that day. I have heard so many sermons over the years about the unfortunate situation of Jesus' birth. Why didn't some man let her stay in the house? She couldn't stay in the house. God had set this in motion from before the foundations of the earth. He had to be born on that day in that Marbake of that Migdal I dare. And he moved heaven, literally heaven and earth, to get it to happen. Because that's what the Torah said. Jesus said, I came to fulfill, not to destroy the Torah. And we think, oh, yeah, you know, when he was an adult, he, he, he kept all the commandments. He was keeping the commandments before he was born. The Torah is unbreakable. And we think of how much God will do to keep the Torah because he wants us to see that he keeps it. Maybe we should keep it. He's that serious about it. Think of I mean, it boggles the mind to think of all the things that he did, had to do, that he put in motion to make this happen exactly this way. Okay, so Jesus is called often the Lamb of God. I would draw your attention to John one twenty-nine. It says, the next day John, and obviously this was when Jesus was an adult, The next day John seeth Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. He was our sacrificial lamb. He had to be born just like the sacrificial lamb, according to the instructions given in the Torah. This was no accident. So the other question you get, on all your Christmas cards you see, I don't know. Maybe, you know, most people are not like me. I get that, okay? I know I'm different. But I see these Christmas cards with all the shepherds kneeling, you know, at this, at this manger. How did they know where to go? Because I've read this account a dozen times or more, a hundred times. And it tells you, oh, baby will be born and blah, 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 blah. It never says where. How did they get there? Uber? <laughs> I mean, you know, most people don't. They just read the Christmas card and go, oh, how beautiful. I'm not that kind of guy. I read the Christmas card and go, how did they know where to go? There are a hundred sheep ranches in Bethlehem. And they're out there in the middle of somewhere guarding their sheep. And some angel appears and says, this great thing is happening, go see. But he never says where. Yeah, no, that's a different story, (laughs) which is equally as wrong. They didn't need to be told. They knew there was only one place. All of the sheep for sacrifices had to come from Boaz's ranch. On Boaz's ranch, there was one sheep tower. Make I dare. There was one marbake. When the angels said, the Lord has come, they knew immediately where to go. Because they already knew this. They've read the Torah. They knew the instructions. They knew it was involved in the tamid, and the offerings. Okay, so this is all going on in this day, which I believe... With all my heart was the 5th, uh, the 20th, the, the, the greatest day of the greatest feast. It was the 29th of September or so, 24th of September, 4 BC. This was all going on. 33 years later, the same cat on the same day comes back to the same place. There's a temple. There are menorahs that are 75 feet tall. There's the Feast of the Tabernacles going on, and Jesus wanders in. And the Feast, it's an awesome teaching, and we've done it a lot. During the Feast of the Tabernacles, there's things that happen every day for eight days. One of the things that happens is uh, these menorahs, they're lit every night, and they send... (laughs) They send the newest little recruit for the temple, the newest little priest, up the ladder, 75 feet, to light all seven bowls, and it's an amazing deal. And they have, uh, there's an offering, there's, a, there's an event that goes on every night when they do this, as you can imagine, because it's a big deal. I mean, this is, this is some fun. This would be fun today to see this going on. So they would go up every night and they would do this. But on the last night, there was a special event when they lit the menorahs. And all the people were there and the priests were there and they're singing and they're doing, reciting uh, psalms and they're doing all this stuff. And it's at this moment that Jesus, as recorded in John 8, 12, and this is 33 years later to the day of his birth. So it's on his birthday. How nice that he's doing this. Jesus spoke again to the people and he said, as they're lighting these menorahs, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Then a few hours later, because they had a water ceremony every day, they would walk, the priests would go down with a procession of people. They'd go down to the Pool of Shilom. They'd pick up a pitcher of water out of the Pool of Shilom. They'd bring it up. They'd pour it over the altar and let the water run down. And there would be prayers and songs and all this stuff. On the last day, they had this huge libation festival. And they would bring seven pitchers of water and all these people. And they'd pour them on the altar. And there was gutters for the water to run down. And it had all this deep meaning. And in the middle of all this stuff... As recorded in John 7:37, Jesus says, Jesus in that last day, the greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried and said, "If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink." This is what's going on on that day. The Feast of Tabernacles begins every year at the 15th of the month and goes on for 7 days, well actually 8 days, 7 full days. 15 is the number of rest, 7 of course the number of perfection. So the Feast of Tabernacles is the Feast of Perfect Rest because it's the feast talking about us going home. Most feasts begin on a new moon because everything is tied to celestial events, but there's two feasts that don't, Passover and Tabernacles, because those feasts celebrate an event that happened on that day. Passover, Jesus was crucified, Three days later, rose from the grave on the Feast of First Fruits. Those happened on that day. So those feasts are on those days. Tabernacles is celebrating, oh, but wait, it hasn't happened yet. But it's not tied to the celestial bodies, it's a day in time. It's the 15th. But nothing's happened that day yet. I would bet that something will be happening on that day. And I will bet it ties in to the end, to our end, to our eternity. I can't tell you what exactly. Jesus will return, will be taken. I don't don't know. But I do know, I believe I know, that whatever is going to happen is related to the end times because every other feast has been on that day. It will break the pattern. And then it all ties up nicely with Jesus' birth, Jesus' birthday, all of these things that happen. Yahweh is the name of God. And it's from the word Hayah. And it means, uh, it's the I am that I am. When, When Moses says, who shall I say sent me? I am that I am. I'm that guy that was there in the beginning, that is here now, that is there at the end. There there is no past or present with God. He just is. That's what's going on, I believe, is we can look at all these things happened in the past. All these things will happen in the future, but God's looking at it like, uh uh-uh, this is all happening now. This is who I am. I am that I am. It's today. So rather than talking about Christmas trees and Santa Claus and presents and flying reindeer, and you know, all those things are great. They're fine. They're wonderful. Everybody enjoys them. Look at my house. We have lights outside. We have fake Christmas trees inside. We have Santa on a polar bear, which is beautiful. But, well, I mean, she did an excellent job building it. (laughs) Can I'm not sure I t- total. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful, isn't it? Yes? Yeah. But I mean, this isn't... Christmas is meaningless. But God already knew that the entire world was going to revolve around Christmas. World Wars stop at Christmas. I mean, everyone on earth associates Jesus with Christmas. And it's easy to say that it's all pagan except God conceived Jesus on the 25th of December as though to say, (laughs) you can do anything you want. You can think anything you want. You don't even have to follow me. But I'll tell you what, I'm going to prove you're wrong because I can do anything I want to do. And I will put this in motion from before the foundations of the earth and you can say nothing except, oh my God. Literally, that's what Thomas said, my Lord and my God. When you see the truth, the only possible answer you have is the same one Thomas had: my Lord and my God. How did you do this? Because it is stunning. So rather than talking about all that stuff, just remember a A man named God Remembers and then Acts, who is married to a lady named God Makes a Perfect Oath, is a priest in a temple playing on the team called. Father God, during the week of New Beginnings. Yahweh kept his wife barren for this exact moment in time, and will now provide him with a son named Camping with God, who will be filled with the Holy Spirit, and shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and will turn many unto the Lord God. He will be born on Passover, and Yahweh will provide signs and wonders in heaven so that we will all know this is from the Lord. Six months later the Spirit will overcome his cousin Mary, and she will be with child by the Holy Spirit. This child will be born in the Migda, or the Marbake of the Migdal-I-Dare in the house of bread where all sacrifices are born. He will be wrapped in sanctified linen. His birth will be on the Hosanna Rabbah or the Great One Saves called the Greatest Day of the Greatest Feast, also known as the Feast of Light. This babe is the light of the world. His birth will be accompanied by a lunar eclipse to confirm the child is the one Yahweh sent. The child will be called, and actually be, living water, light of the world, and bread of life, all things pictured at the Feast of Tabernacles at his birth. The story is not yet fully written, and I suspect the second return of Yahweh, this time not wrapped in Spargano, but wearing the Stephanos, the crown of the victor, And and the going home of his people will also happen, I believe on the greatest day of the Feast of Tabernacles, his birthday, and almost certainly be accompanied by signs in the heavens. But it all began on December 25th of 5 BC, Christmas Day.